I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On June 10, 1983, in Torrington, Connecticut, a young mother was violently attacked by her ex-husband. The vicious attack would spill over into the streets of Torrington around horrified spectators and a police officer who seemed unable to stop this brutal crime. Could this act have been prevented in the first place if the police had just listened to the young woman's cries for help? And who would find the bravery to champion new laws protecting women in the future? This is episode 41, The Tracy Thurman Story. Amy. Hi, Megan. Great to see you and great to be back recording this episode today. Good to see you too, Megan. I specifically chose this case for Women's History Month because it's about a woman whose courage changed the course for women in the criminal justice system in terms of domestic violence. All right, Megan, before we get started today, let's thank some of our supporters. All right, let's do it. All right. A big thank you to Ashley C. She didn't say where. She just said she wanted to be Ashley C. So thank you so much, Ashley. Megan, who else do we have today? We also want to say a big thank you to Nicole from San Diego. Thanks, Nicole. Look you up next time we're out there visiting James' family. Yeah. And I think we have one more today, right, Amy? Yep. And lastly, a big thank you to Ebony R. Thank you so much, Ebony. And thank you to all who support us in every way. And Ashley, stick around for after the show and we will answer your question. And now let's get back to our episode. Tracy was a young woman of just 18 when she met Charles Buck Thurman. She was cleaning rooms at a motel where Buck's construction crew was staying. Tracy was from Torrington, Connecticut and had dropped out of high school at about 10th grade 
to help care for her ailing mother. Her mother passed not too long after from cancer, and so Tracy decided to move to Florida with Buck, with whom she shared an instant attraction and a relationship that developed very quickly. But just as quickly as Buck had wooed her and been Prince Charming, he turned abusive. Tracy said she wasn't terrified the first time Buck slapped her, but his violence would escalate, as we know happens in a lot of these domestic situations. And Buck would come to eventually beat her much more severely. And then he would apologize, as we know is, you know, the cycle as well. Many abusers will do that. They will, you know, heat up and then they will, there will be an incident of violence. And then after there's the apologies and the honeymoon phase, it's a very cyclical thing. And so Tracy experienced a lot of that with Buck. But after one incident, Tracy left Buck and headed home to Torrington, Connecticut. There were several incidents. She just describes this one as being worse. Were they married or just together at this point? That's a good question. And this is what really happened. There was a a bad incident. Tracy left him. She went back to Torrington and was like, I'm done. But shortly after she got back, she found out she was pregnant. And Buck followed her. He apologized. He claimed that he was going to do the better thing for her and his child. And really, Buck convinced her that it was in the best interest that, you know, if they would get married and their child would have two parents and that was the proper way to raise them. So Tracy believed him and they got married only to have this cycle of abuse start pretty quickly, you know, after the marriage again. They also had the stress of moving around a lot. Buck was a construction worker, but it wasn't steady work. And I'm not sure that Buck was a steady worker. Buck was a drinker and he was a gambler. And one night, Tracy woke up to find Buck on top of her, choking her. And that's when she decided to leave him for good. She thought at this moment, this was the incident where she was like, he's going to kill me. Did she have the baby already? Yes, she did. So she took their toddler son, CJ, and returned to Torrington again to stay with friends. And this was a couple, uh, their names, Judy Bentley and Richard Hillary. But Buck was not going to give up that easily. He was, you know, not deterred, let's put it that way, just because she left. He stalked Tracy relentlessly. He had to be forcibly removed from the property on several occasions. Tracy and her friends were constantly calling the police department, and the police officers wouldn't always take their complaints. And when I say wouldn't always take them, they actually flat out refused to take the complaints on several occasions. They seemed more irritated with her calling on a regular basis. They didn't take Tracy seriously. There was an incident where Tracy called and said he's like standing under the little light across the street. He's been there all night. You know, I I really think he's going to hurt me. Their response to some of that was, well, we can't stop him from standing on a public street. And this is after she had been physically attacked by him on the property. Does she have a restraining order? She gets a restraining order. The situation escalated into a couple of events. And one of the events, at one point, Buck got into the house and grabbed CJ and literally ran away. So kidnapped, basically, his own son. Buck had grabbed CJ and threatened to kill him as well, Tracy said. So she was terrified. She got CJ back and he was okay. But her fear was really escalating by this. And then there was another incident. There was a public altercation in which Buck and Tracy had both been down at the police station. And after they left, Buck followed her like right in her car. And when she pulled up to a stoplight, he jumped out of the car and smashed his fist through her windshield just to get to her. And this was in plain sight of the police officers. So on this incident, he was arrested. Now, this is 1982, just so you understand. He was arrested and he was given a suspended sentence and two years conditional release. Conditional release is actually 
it's pretty much as long as you don't violate the conditions, you won't have to serve a sentence. You always have conditions. Probation is always conditional, isn't it? Probation is there are certain terms you have to abide by, but you have a probation officer and you have to maintain employment and you have to do so. Conditional release is the same as probation, except nobody's like checking up on you. Correct. Your release is predicated on the fact that you don't do anything wrong. Okay. It's basically as long as you don't commit another offense. So he got two years conditional release, and he was also ordered to permanently stay away from Tracy's residence in Torrington. But he didn't serve any jail time for this attack. And this was pretty violent, and she could have been severely injured by this. But once more, Buck continued to stalk Tracy and show up at her address. Did he move back to Connecticut as well? It seems like he did for a a certain period of time. He would go back and forth because he was also in Florida and other areas, but it did seem like he had moved back for a certain period of time. He doesn't have residential stability, though. So Tracy called the police several more times to file complaints, and again, they refused to take her complaints. Sometimes they didn't show up when Buck was at her residence. Sometimes they didn't show up when the friends called. So you really couldn't predict what was going to happen with their response. She became increasingly scared and increasingly frustrated with the police department not taking her seriously. And I'm sure you can see where this is going. Yep. That was 1982. About a year later, here's where we're at. On the afternoon of June 10th, 1983, an angry Buck Thurman showed up yet again at Tracy's residence, yelling that he wanted to be a family, that he wanted her to come back. Um, He was highly agitated. And again, this is, you know, about a year after. This has been going on now for over a year. At this time, their 22-month-old CJ was napping. And Tracy was really hoping that he wouldn't wake up and walk into this altercation. And she was concerned about Buck making good on these threats to harm not only her, but their son. She was really worried. So he was outside flipping out, screaming. She's inside. Tracy was able to call the police and she was just going to wait it out basically. But she decided to try to go outside and calm him down to pacify him. Bad idea. Unfortunately, it was. But I think she was also scared. Was he going to push through the door? Was he going to, you know, what was he going to do? I think that was the scary thing. I think she thought if I could just calm him down, then it'll be okay. And also, again, the idea here was that she didn't want her son to wake up and see what was going on. Unfortunately, when Tracy went outside to calm down a very, very agitated Buck, she realized that Buck had brought a knife with him. And he began stabbing Tracy and she began to run, but she didn't get very far because she ran into a garbage pail, which slowed her down Mm. and Buck caught up with her. This is broad daylight. This is broad daylight. When he caught up with her, he began viciously stabbing her over and over again in the streets of a residential area of Torrington, Connecticut. People were out there. There's neighbors out there. People see what's going on. People are freaking out. And then you have a police officer who shows up on the scene. Is this because she had called the police? She called the police. The police officer shows up when Buck is stabbing her. Okay, there are different reports, just so you know. I read that the police officer showed up at least 25 minutes after. In another report, I saw that it was 30 minutes after. And then I saw another one that said it was 45 minutes. I am, I cannot say clearly what the correct time is, but we are going to say anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes after she called is when the police showed up for a domestic incident. Wow. It's a long response time, especially in, you know, not a very big city. And also someone who has a history of complaints against this individual. And he was violating a restraining order by being there. Yeah. He, he was always violating a restraining order by being there. Okay, so this police officer arrives on the scene. And when he got on the scene, it was obvious that he really didn't know what to do. I'm just going to explain this as well as I can. And then we'll, we'll kind of pick it apart. 
With some persuasion from this officer, Buck eventually dropped the knife after having stabbed Tracy, again, let me just say this, 13 times. She's laying on the ground. She's bleeding. She's still alive. She's crying out in pain. There's now a circle around them of neighbors and people screaming at the police officer to do something too. So after Buck drops the knife, what do you think should have happened? He would get arrested, cuffed, right? So, okay, you would think he drops the knife. As a police officer, you know, I'm, I mean, I wasn't a police officer, but I was a parole officer and I know what I would have done. Um, I know that I would have drawn my weapon immediately and ordered him down. And You know what I mean? Drawn on him, ordered him down, down to your knees and effect an arrest or at least try to. This police officer, and this is where things get a little bit icky. This police officer took the knife, not Buck, took the knife and went back to his squad car to lock the knife in the trunk. While Buck was just free. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. And what does Buck do? He runs back to Tracy's apartment, back to the house, and grabs CJ. Runs back towards this crowd who are trying to help Tracy. They're yelling at the officer, you know, what are you doing? Um, He comes back with, with CJ. And this was really terrible. He, with Tracy laying there, this is where he stomped on her neck with such force that he broke her neck. What? This happened while he was holding his son. And he was screaming now, I killed your mother, basically to his son, thinking that he was killing her, that Tracy was dying, all while the police officer is on the scene. Okay. Incredible. It's an incredible, it's an incredible story that it's hard to understand. This wasn't a rookie police officer. I was gonna ask you that. No. So that was one of the questions James had for me when we were reviewing this case. Was was he new? No, he was not only not a rookie. I believe he was very close to retirement, having something like thirty years. On did the he force. have a relationship with Buck? Did he? No, he did okay. not. I think this is one of those situations, honestly, where he had never encountered this type of violent incident, mm-hmm. and I think he just panicked. To be honest, that's did he what call I think. for backup when he first got on? The yeah, side? so backup did show up, um, and that, and that's what happened actually. You know, shortly after medics and other officers arrived. And when the other officers, the backup arrived, they did arrest Buck Thurman. And CJ was unharmed? CJ was luckily unharmed. They arrested Buck Thurman for the brutal assault on his wife. Tracy was taken to the hospital. As I said, she'd been stabbed a total of 13 times across her face. If you look at pictures there, it's across her face and across her neck. And she was stabbed in other places, but the most severe was in her neck, her face, and her shoulder. But like I said, Buck had also stomped on her neck. She had uh, punctures in her esophagus from being stabbed. She had blood in her lungs. And doctors weren't sure that she would ever walk again with the damage done to her neck and spinal cord. But she did live. And let me tell you what happened. Tracy did walk again. Although she was left with permanent damage, and this is severe damage, okay? So Tracy has Her right arm and right leg, so the right side of her body, are mostly paralyzed. And you can actually see that um, that she has to drag her leg and and kind of hold her arm in a certain way. And sorry, conversely, she has no feeling in the left side of her body. So like she can't feel scalding water. So she's got no feeling on the one side and she's paralyzed on the other. So she has tremendous injuries. If you go online, you'll see the extent of her injuries and how bad it really was. It was brutal. This is the most vicious assault. Buck Thurman was tried for first-degree assault and went to trial, where Tracy testified against him. Though it was obviously very painful for Tracy to even physically do so. Um, It was a tremendous task. If you think about it, after the vicious attack, not only did she have to deal with the emotional 
task of going up against Buck, but physically just to even get to the stand, it was hard for her. But she did it. And Buck was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in prison, released after eight years, and went on to live in East Hampton, Massachusetts. He is currently remarried and says he's tired of people bringing this up. That was in a 2008 interview. Oh, boy. Let me say that while friends and neighbors, this was, this was interesting, uh, and I'll cite our sources, obviously, but there were friends and neighbors more recently and, you know, at least since the mid-2000s who were surprised to learn about Charles Buck Thurman's background. They describe him as a family man because he has another child with his wife. They describe him as a mild-mannered man who doesn't drink. This is how people described him after he was released. This is how people described him after. Um, Because if you think about it, he was convicted in 83, released Mm -hmm. in 91. And this is actually people describing him in the 2000s. So about 2006, 2007. At least the article came out right around then. So they're saying he's mild-mannered. He's a great neighbor. He's the type of guy who help you if you need it. All of these nice things. Do you think he was actually reformed in prison? Well, no, because let me get to this part. Prior to that marriage, and there's a big gap here. He's released in 91, and this is in the 2000s. He had another girlfriend with whom he had a child, and this is in the late 1990s. And she filed a restraining order against him for domestic violence. So there's a pattern still. She obviously got a lot luckier than Tracy, though. She didn't sustain any, uh, from what I understand. I'm assuming he doesn't have a relationship with CJ. He does not have a relationship with CJ. That was one of the conditions as well, that he couldn't contact them again. And he's, I hate to say made good, but he's complied with that. He has never reached out or contacted CJ or Tracy from what I read, what I understand. This story doesn't end here, though, with Buck. And we are certainly going to discuss, as we do at the end, our thoughts and opinions on Buck's sentence and the appropriateness of it. But let's talk about Tracy and the aftermath. She had a very long road to recovery and keeping in mind that she'll never fully recover from these injuries. But she did do something, and we often touch on this, she turned this very awful experience into something very positive. Tracy went ahead and filed a lawsuit against the Torrington Police Department in Thurman v. City of Torrington for violating her 14th Amendment right to equal protection under the law. This was very interesting. The argument here is that the police denied Tracy protection that they would afford to someone else because she was a woman and her attacker was her husband, who was her spouse. And so this is the grounds on which they're filing the equal protection violation. This was a landmark case because it was the first time a woman sued an entire city because their police department failed to protect her. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it became very landmark in every way. What was the outcome of this suit? Well, Tracy won, and she was awarded basically just shy of $2 million, and this was in the 1980s. Connecticut also passed Thurman's Law, which mandates arrest in domestic violence complaints. And as we know, many other states followed in suit. And I'd like to take a moment here, Amy, for you and I to discuss mandatory arrest for domestic situations. Because mandatory arrest has also had some other unintended consequences for women. And what do I mean here? Well, first of all, Thurman's Law came about in the 1980s, which marked a real time for the victim rights movement. We know that, which made sense because it followed some of the other big movements by disenfranchised populations. This was, you know, when people started to speak out against inequitable treatment. We had the civil rights movement. We had the women's lib movement, a movement by prisoners to be afforded equal protections. 
The time is absolutely right for this issue, and we know that the most comprehensive act to help victims of domestic violence was passed in 1994, which was VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. And this was really the big push. This provided more aid, legal protections, and a lot more rights for victims. But returning to the policy of mandatory arrest, mandatory arrest meant that basically, even if a victim didn't want to press charges, the abuser or the alleged abuser had to be arrested anyway. When we know prior to the 80s, it was the whole old like police officer shows up, someone's doing something wrong. They give them a, you know, a cool down or they give them the pep talk and whatnot. Okay, so now it's changed and there's a mandatory arrest. That marks real progress. And just to make this clear, that was done because people, particularly women who are abused, would sometimes not press charges or not ask for the arrest because they'd be fearful of their own life. That's correct. Yeah, so this was one of the big changes that happened. What I what I meant by consequences, though, is that it evolved a little bit differently in terms of it, it applied to women. And that was the appropriate application because women were, you know, uh, are disproportionately affected. However, what's happened now and what became more of a thing in the 2000s is that males began to also report domestic violence. Historically, males just did not report for a lot of different reasons, Mm -hmm. but males report now. So what's changed about the mandatory arrest policies, Amy probably knows where I'm going already, but- An unintended consequence was that women were being wrongfully arrested? Yeah, the unintended consequence is now in many jurisdictions, if you and I are in a domestic situation and a police officer shows up and I say, you hit me- And I say, you hit me. We both get arrested. So what's happened with mandatory arrest in that way is that it's actually pre- it's drastically increased the number of women who are being prosecuted for domestic violence. Well, because violence. abusers know, whether it be a man or woman, an abuser knows like, oh, all I have to do is say you did it. You say I did it. Your word against my word. You're coming down with me. Absolutely. And now look, in fairness, sometimes this sometimes this is going to be appropriate because we know that women, I, I can detail cases that we've even covered. We know that women absolutely abuse men as well. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it's going to be that it's the unintended. Regardless of gender, whoever the abuser is can bring down the non-abuser. Absolutely. It's um, the unintended consequence that I talk about is just that women have been swept. It's one of the increases. When we've discussed why females have been incarcerated in much greater numbers, usually the two reasons are one, because of the mandatory changes in arrest for domestic incidents, and the second one, because of the mandatory drug laws that that have them Mm -hmm. getting swept in. So this is one of those unintended Mm -hmm. consequences. Before I move on, what are your thoughts, Amy? Should both parties get arrested? Because I have really mixed feelings about this policy. I don't know because I it goes. I could see it cutting both ways. I guess. What my, do you think? Yeah, I'm not. This is obviously not my area yeah. of expertise, but I have to say there are certain cases that there's going to be clear and convincing evidence that one party has been injured. Um, I would say maybe you know I don't know how you decipher that all the time. But what if it's self defense? That's, you know, so it's really no. Hard that's to actually true. That's true as well. That. I guess you have to be better safe than sorry. Yeah, I'm not sure where I stand on this. And again, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, I do too. Because please, if people have, you know, if you have strong feelings one way or the other, uh, please feel free to write with us with your opinion. I almost feel like it goes back to 
that famous thought experiment. Would you rather convict an innocent person or let a guilty person go free? Yes. So really, it's a tough one. Well, what's your what's your answer on you, that one? You know my answer on that one. All right, fine. What is it? You'd rather let a guilty person go free. Correct. But then if you want to play devil's advocate and say, well, what if that guilty person then kills your family? It's like, well, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's I, I can, even though that's always my answer, I can definitely see where... You know, I would say the other way, too. Well, regardless of our opinions on this matter, this is pretty much where yeah, we're at right now. Exactly. We're pretty much at mandatory arrest for both parties when the accusation goes both ways. And maybe that's overly cautious, but maybe that's what it's we probably have to saved be. hundreds of lives. Yeah, that's true. OK, thanks for your opinion on that. Getting back to Tracy. What else did she do? Well, she consulted on a made for television movie starring Nancy McKeon called A Cry for Help, The Tracy Thurman Story which was really excellent. I know that um, we've talked about made-for-TV movies before. I have to tell you, watch this one. Even though it was like the 80s and it's a made-for-TV, it was such an impactful movie. Do you know who Nancy McKeon is? Nope. She was Joe from Facts of Life. Oh. Yes. Okay. And um, the person who played Buck Thurman, you would know him as well if you We're saw him. We're aging ourselves. Just. I mean, we've already <laughs> aged ourselves. I think that's that ship has sailed. Um, the movie was really outstanding, and it actually held very, very true to the real-life details. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to go ahead and watch it. It was one of the first inspirations for this case for me. Um, remember when I talked about the first show that we ever did on Women in Crime was the Betty Broderick case, yep. and I talked about how I saw that movie and how I could it never left me. I felt the same exact way about this one. It never left me. And this is one of these cases that has always stuck with me because of that. So the moral of the story here is my mom really let me watch bad TV when I was young. <laughs> so she went on to consult and they paid her a consulting fee for that. A few years later, Tracy met and married her current husband, Michael Modizic, and they are still together after 30-something years. They're still very much in love. He gives very nice, very sweet interviews about her. You could tell the way they speak about each other is just she really finally found the true partnership that she was looking for. And Did she have more children? No, but Michael adopted CJ, which was fantastic. But sadly, CJ has had his own troubles with the law. CJ has had several arrests for drug crimes, gambling, theft, and other crimes, but the one that landed him in prison was an assault on a girlfriend, oh. which unfortunately isn't exactly a complete surprise. Nature versus nurture, which one? Is it he learned the behavior or he was dealing with, you know, the turmoil from his family or is there something biological going on? It's hard to say. Uh, you, you, could, you could certainly say that it was he witnessed it, although he was quite young when he witnessed that. Is it biological? Or taking aside the assault, which we can debate nature and nurture on all day long, why is it also, Amy, not so much of a surprise that CJ would find himself incarcerated at a certain point as well? Because we know that children of parents who have been incarcerated have a much higher likelihood of being themselves incarcerated. Exactly. And that's an unfortunate reality that we have to live with. So he has had his trouble. I mean, he did witness it. Even if he was young enough, uh, there could be a cycli the cyclical nature to abuse. I know that Tracy was very forgiving, and she described her son as making mistakes, but she believed he'd do the right thing once he grew up and, and moved forward. She was trying to be optimistic. And I think they still had a good relationship. You know, this was years ago that I read this. This was definitely, you know, a little bit dated and I haven't read anything since. So maybe he did actually wind up getting, you know, his life so. together. Yeah. I hope so too. Tracy also still volunteers counseling victims of domestic violence. And she was recently honored in Connecticut for her work in contributions to changing the way domestic violence cases are treated, not just in Connecticut, but around the country. 
Now that we've covered the story, Amy, I'd like to get to our final thoughts and opinions. I'm going to start and then I'll, I'll bump over to you. First, I'd like to say that these types of tragedies are always a shame when they could have been prevented. And though Buck probably would have kept coming for Tracy, we won't know because he never suffered any type of real legal deterrent or punishment that might have caused him to change his course of action. There was nothing serious enough to ever deter him. Criminologically, without knowing too much about Buck's childhood, I just want to say that I tried to find out more about Buck's childhood, but there was very limited information. So without knowing that, there are a couple of theories that might explain Buck's behavior. One of them that I can't say for sure, but the first is one Amy discussed before, and that's learning theory. This is pretty well accepted in the field of domestic violence. If Buck was raised in a potentially violent home where violence was normalized, then Buck learned that that behavior is okay and continue that. I can't say that for sure for Buck. I can tell you that's one of the leading theories in domestic violence criminologically. There are two other theories, though, that I can tell you I see in Buck and could apply to him. And this is, of course, an educated guess, but Buck wasn't a very successful guy. He was very angry. He was very aggressive. And he took out his feelings of inadequacy every time he lost a job or lost a gamble, you know, a poker game or something. He took that out on Tracy. Buck seemingly had no coping skills. One of the things I see here is just strain theory. He wasn't able to deal with his anger and frustration, and the way he took out his anger and frustration was on Tracy, which seems evident. I'd also add that I see low self-control theory here, which can be argued born or bred, and I'm not going to argue that. I'm just going to say that some of the traits of low self-control are impulsivity, no long-term planning, quick to anger and react. Buck has all the signs, all the classic symptoms of low self-control theory. Amy, I'm sorry, a theory-wise, or is there anything else you would see, or do you agree? No, again, without knowing much of his background, it's hard to really theorize on what else could be going on. It's true. I also read that um, with abusers, they have personality disorders as well, which I couldn't diagnose him with, but mm -hmm. this is probably the most evident. I do find it interesting that he seemingly changed though it sounds like after tracy he had one failed relationship and now as far as we know he is in a relationship in which there is no violence but of course well there's two parts to that one is that's as far as we know mm -hmm. and it could be that she's not reported yeah. the other part of that is that by the time buck was in that relationship he's he aged out exactly he's aging out of crime although Domestic abusers don't necessarily age out of crime. Although, I mean, it is possible, Megan, that this is a situation where an individual served time and they've rehabilitated themselves. No. I'm not sure that. Oh, no, because no. you said second marriage. He had another. He had domestic issues afterwards. He got out of prison, though, at 30 years old, still a young guy. And I don't think eight years was nearly enough for all the. Harm OK, that so he that's caused. where I was going next Eight years is not enough. Was but it an attempted murder charge or an assault charge? It's like Amy literally reads my mind. Let me just say what I'm, uh, this is okay, exactly what I was going to say next. Buck Thurman was tried for first degree assault, which involves intent to cause life-threatening injuries or life-threatening injuries are the result. Yeah. I don't understand why this charge wasn't attempted murder, which could have well, resulted in possibly a life sentence in prison. He brought a knife. And attacked her until he I was thought say, he also went back a second time to stomp on her neck. Yes. And he was screaming at his son, I killed your mother. So he thought he killed her. And that was why. This case went to trial or it was yes. a plea? Really? Went to trial in first degree assault, which is drastically different. Why is this not attempted murder? I have no idea. 
total failure on this one. And is there not premeditation here? He brought a knife with him. That's what I'm... I this is seems like there's no there's I see classic attempted murder here. I yeah. do not see first degree assault here. Absolutely not. I totally agree. Uh, you know, Megan, I'm not someone who believes that everyone should die in prison or get these ridiculously long sentences. But eight years for what I consider very clearly an attempted murder. He this guy got out at 30 years old and had a yes. whole life to live when she is still dealing with the trauma physically and emotionally of what happened to her. Exactly. And she was very scared when he got out. Yes. She course. was doing a lot of speaking events and she stopped doing them when he got out because she said, I'm never going to And he be never safe. contacted her or anything as far as? From what I could ascertain, he has not contacted her. But yeah, 14 years was not an appropriate sentence. Release in eight, totally not appropriate. Nope. This is a guy where I can't tell you what the appropriate sentence is. But again, I want him in prison till he's aged out of crime. I agree. Good. I'm glad we're on the same page. This is always my concern. And also, I think someone like him needs to give back. He should be the one who's, you know, talking to people about what he did and how regretful and how anger made him. So, you know, like, I feel like she shouldn't be the only one who's going around talking. Like, he should somehow be giving back, going to talk to youth about anger or something. I think you're right. I mean, maybe he's remorseful and we don't know about it. But again, the tone of the article I read where he said, you know, this is like my past and I'm really sick and tired of people bringing this up. <laughs> no, like this, it was a stress. No, you have to live with this your whole the whole rest of your life. I think you have to live with this And too. I think it's safe to say that it's affected his son or had effect, a strong effect on his son. And it's not okay that you destroy two people's lives. And, and got to have a whole life of your own yeah. and, and a new family. I yeah. mean, I can say the only hope I would have is that he really did reform. I, I hope that, you know, in his latest, re uh, last relationship, he has a wife and child with whom he treats respectfully and who he, you know, I have never really heard of anyone growing out of abuse. But I um, also know that his neighbors described him as being, he doesn't drink. And even though drinking absolutely does not cause abuse, it definitely, it's one of those what we call facilitators mm -hmm. or aggravators. And I know that he was a heavy drinker and that the incidents of violence often coincided with okay. them. It's possible that sobriety was also um, a okay. key factor in him not being abusive mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah. Um, again, this is just always my concern, though, with people aging out of crime. Yeah. I just want to bring it back to that because, you know, as soon as I read he got out at 30, I was like, that's not going to be a good thing. Yeah. Or such a violent crime. No, we want to make sure that we think prison is overused, but we want to make sure that the people who are most violent that's who prisons are used for. And we want to make sure that they are incapacitated by incarceration for their most likely offending years. Mm -hmm. That's the way to use prison appropriately. Yep. I am glad that Tracy was able to move on and do so much good, but I'm sure she would have preferred to have done something good with her life under entirely different circumstances. I agree. Thanks to her, though, many other women will have that opportunity. Yeah, I think it's incredible when people who have been so brutally victimized are able to find the good in it and service serve other people. And I'm glad that she's been honored for all of her work yes. and contributions because yes. she certainly was a trailblazer in this way. Yeah, it, I agree. She certainly was a trailblazer in mm -hmm. that way. Thank you, Megan, for bringing this important case. Before we leave today, let's get to one of our patron questions. All right, let's do it. All right, Ashley C. wants to know what would be your dream vacation? Obviously, this would be in a non-COVID world where you could just relax, disconnect, and enjoy yourself. Okay. Oh, I, I have, love this question. I love this one. I have mine, but I want to hear yours first. <sighs> okay. Um, okay, so I am going to say Costa Rica and, well, I want to go to Iceland, but I'm going South Africa. That's great. Where are you yeah. going? I will say South Africa is very high on my list, but my absolute top dream place to go is Bali. <gasps> 
That's what Ashley said hers was. No That's way. so funny. Yeah, because I asked her. I was like, well, you have to tell me yours. Bali is just, I just want to go. Like those huts in the middle of the ocean. That's like exactly my dream. But you know why uh, Bali won't happen for me, right? It's too far on a plane and you're a baby. Yeah, our listeners, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm a big baby about flying. And that's actually why I haven't gone to some of the fabulous places I've wanted to go. So Bali is the dream. I just think once I get to Bali, I can never leave. But that's okay. Why can't you just take lots of medication and sleep? Or why can't I just stay in Bali? That too. <laughs> Thank you. That's a fun question. I love that one. Thank, Thank you so you. much for asking. And Ashley, I'll see you in Bali. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, that does it for today. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Thank you. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an article from the Hartford Current, two articles from the Republican American Archives, an article from the Register Citizen, and an article from the Chicago Tribune. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.